Hello and welcome to Open Stance. I am your host, Tracy Height-Smith. This is segment four of a series which looks into the heart of domestic violence. In this episode, I have the privilege to speak with Thelma Schwartz. Thelma is the Principal Legal Officer at the Queensland Family Violence Legal Service based in the head office in Cairns, Australia. She has over 23 years of legal experience delivering critical services to victims within the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in Queensland and the Northern Territory. This is an intimate, powerful and informative conversation in which we learn how Thelma's own trauma, surviving childhood family violence makes her work a deeply personal and empowering experience. It is my privilege and honor to welcome Thelma Schwartz to Open Stance. Good morning, Thelma. How are you today? I'm very well. Um, thanks for having me, Tracy. How are you going? I'm actually really well today. Thanks for asking. And would you like to open by just giving us a little bit of background on, on who you are and where you work? No, thank you very much. Um, I'd like to start by saying that I've got the very great privilege of coming to you from the proud lands of the Gimoy Wallabra Yidinji and Irankanji peoples, the traditional custodians of the lands here in Cairns. I pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge um, that for thousands and thousands of years they've cared for, nurtured the land um, that I'm able to live and work on. Um, and, uh, you know, for me as well, um, I acknowledge my um, my heritage. Um, I'm a German Samoan Papua New Guinean and proud Torres Strait Islander um, heritage woman. Um, and I've been practicing as a lawyer for over 23 years, both in Queensland and the Northern Territory. I work at the Queensland Indigenous Family Violence Legal Service as their principal legal officer. Uh, QUIFLS is our um, acronym um, and what we're locally known as um, is a state practice. Um, we have offices in over um, eight locations, I believe, in Queensland. So our head office and service officer in Cairns, Townsville, Rockhampton, Mount Isa, Brisbane. Um, where am I missing? Thursday Island, the Northern Peninsula area in Bamiga. Um, we're soon to open offices on Palm Island. Uh, let me see, Emerald and uh, a satellite office in Normanton. Um, so we service right up to the the international border with Papua New Guinea and we provide free legal services and non-legal service supports for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who are victim survivors of domestic and family violence and or sexual assault. Um, our practice areas are domestic and family violence law, child protection, family law, victims assist um, Queensland applications, which is the equivalent of victims' injuries compensation um, in other schemes around Australia that don't have a statutory scheme. We support victims of sexual assault uh, through the criminal legal system um, and prior to entry into the criminal legal system. Um, we also provide services to victims who are wanting to access the Disability Royal Commission, which is still running. Uh, it'll finish taking submissions on the 31st of December this year. Um, and we provide services to Torres Strait Islander peoples who are seeking to obtain cultural recognition orders under Queensland's very unique and distinct, it's a one of a kind in Australia, Maraba, Amuska, Kazua, Kazipa, um, traditional Torres Strait Islander Cultural Adoption Act. So we do a fair bit. Um, we do a fair bit of policy work as well. I have the benefit and privilege of working with my own um, senior policy officer, 
the Lumber Chiingi. Um, we do policy law reform submissions both at the state and Commonwealth level. Uh, and my policy officer, Columba, is enjoying a very well-earned break. Um, he's gone overseas to visit family in Africa, so I'm, I'm looking forward to him coming back next week. There's so much legislative reform on the go. So I'm hoping that gives you a bit of a, a bit of an idea of the practice. Um, we don't, um, it's not a gender-based practice. It's open to men, women and children. Um, but the reality of my practice is it is very gender-driven. Uh, I'd say about 90% of our practice uh, services are provided to women, uh, women who are escaping and fleeing the impacts of family violence um, and um, intimate partner violence. And that'll be all over the state. And I've indicated um, how broad our service stretches. The only area we're not in is the Southwest, which is serviced by another family violence prevention legal service, the Aboriginal Family Legal Service South Queensland, um, where we have a, a very warm collaborative relationship to ensure that services are provided um, to those most vulnerable and in need. So that's a bit of us. Um, thank, thank you for that. That was an extensive overview <laughs> and much appreciated. Thank you. Well, Thelma, today um, our conversation focuses on family domestic violence and sexual assault, specifically in the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and children. For you personally, how does this podcast make you feel today? How are you feeling about it? Oh, um, it's always a raw nerve uh, when I have to talk very openly and publicly um, about domestic and family violence. And people are like, hang on, you're a lawyer, you're an advocate, you've been in this space for 23 plus years. Um, my family background, I, I am a child survivor um, of family violence um, between my parents um, and growing up within that context, um, watching that um, and shielding my two younger sisters um, through that journey. So that was quite traumatic. And you carry that trauma. Um, I've certainly carried that um, for many, many years. And I continue to carry that trauma. Um, and I'm, I'm still on my trauma and my healing journey. And I think that's really pivotal to understand, uh, especially when you're providing services uh, whether they're legal and non-legal services, to victim survivors. Um, having a very trauma-informed approach and really understanding, for me, to grasp it um, comes from my own knowledge and what I saw and experienced. And, um, you know, the I think working in this space, when I first started out as a lawyer, uh, I was very privileged to be a judge's, Supreme Court judge's associate in the Northern Territory, I did my articles of clerkship at the Central Australian Aboriginal Legal Service. And then I came back in and my first legal job was as a domestic violence legal help lawyer. Um, and for me, that was too raw and too soon. And the reason why it was too raw and too soon was that um, when I completed my law degree, um, it really was the precipice for the, the breakdown of my parents' relationship. And that came um, one day when I, you know, there was a big argument between my parents. My father was getting physically abusive with my mother. I got in between the two of them um, and, you know, basically just had to tell my dad, you can't do this anymore. I, I'm, I'm about to be admitted as a lawyer. Um, and I take those obligations really seriously and I'm not going to let you hurt her or my family anymore. 
So part of my empowerment um, led to the dissolution of my parents' marriage. Um, it led to the breakup of that family unit, but it also led to the beginning of my journey of empowerment um, as a woman, as an Indigenous woman and as a lawyer. Um, and it led to the empowerment of my mother and my two younger sisters and having that sense of freedom um, that comes with, you know, going through that and um, having the ability to have another shot at life because sometimes you can lose all all sense of hope and I, I can empathise with that um, when I deal with and hear stories of victim survivors because I walked in those shoes um, I, I certainly understand looking through that that lens. So this is why it's a very personal space for me, but it's also a very empowered space uh, given my own journey um, and where I am now. I, I wouldn't have been able to do this, but for those experiences, I have a tenuous relationship with my father, but I still love my father. He's still my dad. Um, and my mum is my mum and mm. that's my family unit. I'm not ashamed of any of it. Whereas before when I was much younger, I, I hid beneath a veil of shame um, and I, I refuse to live my life like that. You know, I've transformed as part of my healing journey and I'm continuing to grow uh, through that journey, Tracy. Thelma, I'm very sorry that you and your family have been through that. Um, I'm also incredibly inspired by the message of hope that you have just shared. One of the things that hits me from that is we talk about the cycle of abuse, Thelma, uh, when you yes. live in an environment of a violent domestic family like you did, how did you break the cycle of abuse? I think you need to not give up hope. Um, I was, I threw myself into study. I threw myself into schooling and that may not be the journey of many other people, but you need to find something that you can focus on that gives you a sense of purpose and self-worth. Mm. Um, and through that, um, you can have a vision for that that lies outside. And I kept searching for that which lied outside. All of those things that I wanted to aspire to, um, to live, to be, and what I wanted for my mother and my sisters. I wanted a life free of violence. I wanted a life where we could be self-expressive, um, we could do and please as we wanted. We didn't have to report our movements. We didn't have to live under a veil of constant surveillance and monitoring. Um, so that was my goal. And having a very inquisitive mind, um, wanting to know and being inspired um, by, you know, people when I was growing up, um, you know, watching the ABC, watching Rumpole of the Bailey and being inspired by, you know, jolly old Rumpole um, to think, big and to ask questions that's what I wanted to be and to stand up for those people who couldn't um, and so part of my journey was actually being able to do that but it meant you know having to play a really pivotal space and standing up to my own dad um, and confronting him with his behaviors um, and that hasn't been easy it's it's not but you've got to keep believing and taking one day at a time to achieve that objective and I think when I look at uh, my trajectory, you know, I've practiced in commercial litigation for close to eight years. I've been a criminal defense lawyer representing men, women, and children, and especially men who perpetrate violence against their intimate partners. Now I've done that, but I've been able to learn from that. I've been able to understand um, what was going on and to help me understand my own father's dynamic 
I'm not a trained social worker. I'm not a trained psychologist. I didn't do all of that study, but I needed to understand a bit of the human condition to understand my own dad um, and, you know, have some sort of formative relationship with my dad because I'm, I have the only grandchild. <laughs> um, my son, Jared, is the only grandchild. So I had to carve out a relationship that he could have uh, with his um, granddad um, and with my mum and find a, a medium um, as well. So, um, you know, if I can do it, um, anyone else can. And you've got to have a bit of faith and belief, um, something to, to hold on to, because if you lose sight of that light, um, it's very easy to give up and let circumstances overtake you and dictate um, life for you. And I was not going to um, succumb to that. And I think maybe that's just a, a little bit of an, a glimpse of how stubborn I am and the, the will and the drive to survive and live life on my terms, um, the terms that I, I'm comfortable with. So I hope that answers that for you, Tracy, um, in terms of what kept me going uh, through it all. And it wasn't easy. It certainly wasn't easy, but I, I couldn't, you know, I had an option to study um, my law degree in Tasmania. Um, I chose to study my law degree in Darwin at home because I could not leave my mother and my sisters, um, not like that until I felt fully empowered to protect them from my understanding of the law uh, and how to seek help. Um, so from a survivor lawyer advocate perspective, you come from both places. What support did you have or didn't have that you now offer and you find very impactful and critical uh, to help the people that you're, you're working with? Um, when I came through, um, when I got admitted in 1999, uh, practicing as a female lawyer in the Northern Territory, uh, it, it really still had that... <laughs> Um, that aura of being a wild west, a bit of a boys club. Uh, and you really didn't go about demonstrating uh, or showing uh, those overt signs of weakness. Um, I, though, had very strong female mentors, especially within the business, um, the private practice that I worked with, um, who were very strong in supporting women in, in achieving um, and because they were partners in law firms, obviously that was something to aspire to. But at that stage, you know, when I came into practice, it was still very uh, um, uncomfortable to discuss the impact of trauma. I mean, trauma, what was trauma? That was a dirty word for lawyers with respect. Um, we did not feel comfortable talking about mental health. We did not feel comfortable talking about um, health and well-being. Uh, we were just there to be very competitive and empire build with respect. So that was the framework that I came into as a very junior lawyer, um, but very grateful that I had very strong female lawyer mentors around me. I was part of the NT Women Lawyers Association um, and I could feel very safe um, with my female law colleagues um, who are still very much pushing up against uh, what is very what was then very heavily and has elements today, unfortunately, of, of being a very male um, patriarchal um, practice and trying to break through those barriers um, for women and especially um, women from culture, First Nations women, you know, these are uh, those things that you, you just, you know, um, so that was hard um, other than having my female mentors and 
uh, the group of uni students that I went through in Darwin at NTU um, as my um, my sounding boards. <laughs> um, a lot of nights spent at, at different pubs down Mitchell Street, uh, unwinding and all of that. But um, that was then, and I'm grateful now that we've seen such a um, transformation of the legal practice and the legal profession where we are becoming much more aware of um, vicarious trauma. We're becoming much more aware of mental health and how we best treat our staff to ensure that if we have healthy and happy staff, we can actually achieve um, solid outcomes for clients, um, clients achieving what they need to. Uh, and I suppose if you're in private practice, you're able to continue to build and maintain healthy relationships with clients who come back so, you know, nowadays in my practice, um, it's just commonplace that we offer um, employee assistance programs, which are highly confidential um, services for our staff to access counselling. Um, that's there, there for staff. It's also there for executive management, of which I'm one. Um, it's easier to have these discussions with your line manager about your mental health if you're impacted by trauma. Um, you're not going to be shunned. You're not going to be turned away. People aren't going to um, look down on you, dismiss you. Um, you're actually going to be supported to keep achieving. It's no longer uh, that dirty little secret that we kept hidden um, behind closed doors because there was a perception that domestic and family violence was a private matter. It should be kept within the confines of uh, privacy of the home. And you can see that transformation of pulling domestic and family violence out of the shadows into the public sphere and saying domestic and family violence is everyone's business. It um, impacts us all. It impacts our economy. We all have a place to call it out and support victim survivors as we move forward and hold perpetrators to account. Um, so I'm, I'm really proud of the transformation that I've seen driven uh, within the legal profession um, in stepping up and um, looking after the health and well-being not only of peoples affected by domestic and family violence, but also their staff who provide services uh, to victim survivors. That's been um, an important transformation, as well as recognising and supporting gender equality, uh, supporting women um, in the profession, achieve goals like becoming more partners in law firms, appointments to um, the bench, um, appointments to, you know, um, being barristers, uh, becoming silk, all of these things. Um, so these are very important. Um, and they're not just the tick and flick. They have a bigger impact on our society. And the, the place for girls, women and girls, um, you know, we can do it. And we should do it. Awesome. All right. Well, switching gears a little bit, let's talk about the perception of the criminal justice system. Um, what do you believe about the criminal justice system? Is it the only way to get justice? Or how can justice look to survivors? I, I think um, we've, when I went through law school um, many years ago, feeling very old, um, there was only one one way that a victim survivor could obtain justice, and that was through the criminal justice system. Um, that, with respect, is not true. 
um, that is a fallacy. Um, a victim survivor can achieve justice through many means. One of those in terms of holding a perpetrator to account is through the criminal justice system, yes. Another way that a justice can look like for a victim survivor um, is being treated as a human being um, with dignity and respect. When that victim survivor who is, it's gendered, um, when she comes forward to the police and she makes a complaint, she is heard, she's seen, she's believed. That complaint is taken. Um, and it is treated with the utmost um, respect. Um, when she wants to make that complaint, if it's not to the police, if she's making it to a counsellor, um, she is supported in making that. She's given her options. She's given the ability to make decisions where she's got a sense of control. Because what we see with victim survivors, especially if they're elements of coercive control, they've lost all sense of any control over their life. Um, basic functioning, um, all of that's gone. They've been stripped back and they're just um, left with nothing. And if I've seen anything coming out of what's going on in Queensland at the moment with the Commission of Inquiry into Police Responses into Domestic and Family Violence, um, we've had a really critical uh, report findings uh, which have shown systemic failures by the Queensland Police Service in relation to, you know, there's an inherent system of sexism, misogyny and racism, which then impacts the way services are provided um, to external service providers, but importantly, victim survivors. And when we look at why police are so critical in this space and to have an appropriate response, police are our gatekeepers to the justice system. If the response is trauma-informed, uh, treating a victim as a human being, um, treating her with respect and dignity, um, you can ensure that she will have a better outcome through that system, even if it doesn't result in a conviction of that person within the criminal justice system. If you don't, um, if you just treat her with absolute disdain, um, as we've seen evidence coming out of that inquiry, um, what you will do, those actions embolden uh, perpetrators. Uh, there is no accountability for perpetrators and she will completely disengage from the system. And we know when she disengages, there is a high rate of fatality um, that that comes about. So I think it's really, you know, what we've seen out of this report is that there are many ways to envisage what justice looks like. And for an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander woman, what justice looks like for them, or what I hear many times in my consultations, is wanting the violence to stop. That's it. So that is the level of what they want. We want him to stop. We want him to change his behaviours. Um, and, you know, I, I think we've got to be really mindful of that and listening to the voices of victim survivors, and especially if they're saying, I actually want to go through the criminal justice system and I actually need you now to do your job um, to assist me achieve justice through this lens, um, which also includes perpetrator accountability. Like we can't forget that. So Thelma, when I read about, um, I, I read a post you put up recently mm -hmm. and you talked about the issue of murdered and missing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. And you, you talk about, these women and children as a that they're of no consequence 
they're not the ideal victim. They're not heard and believed. And this goes back into what you've just been saying. What, what needs to happen if what, what's going on behind the scenes actually? And are these women and children able to get support if they're not heard or believed? And, and what can you talk to us about this? What's I actually the, happening? Yeah. The, the current, um, there's a Commonwealth inquiry into missing and murdered Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and um, children that's currently um, underway in Australia. Um, and it's, it's brought on the basis that for many years, um, our women and our children go missing and there is no publicity um, around it. Um, and I think it really comes from, you know, when we look at this, um, there is prejudice. Um, we're not ideal. Um, every time police will go out to call outs, there is a high level of misidentification uh, with respect. And the reason why there's a high level of misidentification will be that they will go to a call out. The Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander woman is highly agitated. Um, she's probably standing with a weapon that might be a stick, might be a knife. She could be covered in blood. Um, the uh, other person, the other party, normally a man, is sitting very quietly and he's speaking very calmly to police. They will treat him as the victim. They will treat her as the perpetrator and charge her accordingly with the criminal offences and then place the domestic and family violence protection order, naming her as the, um, the aggressor. What we find out when my service and services like mine come in is that there's been a long history of um, domestic and family violence-based incidents in that report. There have been multiple calls to the police who've either dismissed it, oh, it's just a lover's tiff, oh, you know, yeah, you know, they're always growling, nothing to worry about, nothing to see. Um, and if you're looking at why I'm being so flippant in those comments for an evidence base, Go and have a read of the evidence that came out that was put before the Commission of Inquiry into police responses in, in Queensland. It's all in there. So because they're so dismissive, they don't want to come out, they don't want to investigate, here we go, you know, um, there's just trouble with these First Nations people. Um, when she explodes, and she will explode, she snaps and she will, this is that aspect of retaliative violence. Um, and she's acting out because of that history of violence and abuse. Um, and then she's misidentified. And when she's misidentified and she's processed through the criminal justice system, um, what we're finding is that she will be refused bail. Um, she will then be held in um, custody because bail's been refused pending the outcome of a criminal law matters. If there are children, um, those children are then taken away into the custody of child protection services. And the, the, the horror, and I say horror here, um, because those children, um, from the reports we know, um, have a high percentage likelihood of coming, you know, having further ongoing contact with youth justice, negative peer association, and then becoming a, a product of the criminal justice adult system. So we're feeding a system and we're not taking a moment to actually look what is, what's going on here. Um, negative stereotyping of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, unconscious bias, racism. Let's call it out for what it is here. Um, why people don't cover when a First Nation woman is killed 
to the same extent and level as a non-First Nations woman. And I think the media really need to take a lot of responsibility in this space because what they fail to see is that First Nations woman is a human being. Um, they're a mum, they're a sister, they're a daughter, they're an auntie, um, they're a friend, they're a worker. They don't see that. Um, you just see us through this lens of black and white and you miss the humanity. And that for me is the appalling nature of what unfortunately um, I see being played out day in and day out uh, and the lack of true justice and equity and equality for First Nations people. So this is why it is so important that we are having this national inquiry into murdered and missing women and children who are First Nations and looking at the systems and the systemic racism behind why we're not seen and why we get a second-rate service response system in probably one of the um, best uh, democracies in the first world um, with, you know, signatories to all of these UN conventions, excuse me, recognising the inherent dignity and worth um, of the human being and particularly women and particularly First Nations people. So it makes me very emotional um, because I can't um, understand how we as, you know, a First Nations world um, can continue this practice, um, continue to stand by and pretend to be blind with all of this that's going on, this racism that's still very much allowed, alive and playing out um, in modern Australia, Tracy. Thelma, do you think Australia is ready mm -hmm. to make real change or is everything just a gesture, especially in relation to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and children? I am an eternal optimist. Um, and that may be hard <laughs> to conceptualise after all of the dark um, spaces that we've woven through today, but I am an eternal optimist. I believe in hope. I believe that people, when given um, the full facts, will make an informed decision that um, will always see justice, equity and equality coming out uh, in favour of all. And I look to um, what, what I'm bored by is when Australia goes through natural disasters, when we have cyclones and flooding up here in the far north, uh, we come together. Um, we come together, we look out for our neighbours, we're there, we're helping out. It doesn't matter what colour, what race, religion you are, we're there looking out. And that element of mateship, which I believe is um, interwoven into the fabric of Australia, is what I believe will get us there. Um, and I truly believe that there is a momentum where people are looking at issues um, with a renewed sense of humanity and looking at and recognising the inherent dignity and worth of each of us and the journeys that we're all on. And when I go out and I'm speaking to people, um, I remind them, hey, guess what? We live in the same communities as you guys. We go to the same schools, same shops, and you know what? A lot of the times we have the same hopes and dreams that you do. So why is there a difference between you and I um, in approach? Um, just see me as a human being and treat me with that same level of respect uh, and dignity that you would with anyone else, and that's half of the battle won. 
Um, another part is that Australia needs to embark. It's time, it's been more than time, uh, on a period of truth-telling and understanding the truth of this nation. And yes, there are elements that are really hard, um, incomprehensible, painful, but we need to go through it to understand why we have these barriers, why there is such um, mistrust of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples of policing and other services response. We need to understand that because when I went through school, it wasn't taught Australia's true history. I was given a very one-dimensional view uh, of this country and I had to do my own reading and research about it. And you're like, whoa, hang on a minute. Um, we need to know this, you know, so we can move forward. And it's part of the healing uh, journey. And I believe that we are, uh, the majority of Australians um, are ready for this journey. Next year is a huge year. We've got the referendum on the voice to parliament, on the recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in this country. And um, I believe that Australians are ready for this. Um, it, 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 needs, it, it needs to occur. I mean, my God, it's 2022. How much longer do we need to go on without recognising the space and place for Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples? And speaking to that um, in regards to healing and recovery, how does this play a part in the bigger picture for for survivors healing? I think it's very important for service providers, um, agencies, you know, NGOs, government departments to recognise um, that a victim um, and survivor um, simply, they're on a journey. Um, and just because you might make a report to someone doesn't mean that that's it. It's instantly fixed. Um, you know, I, I think there's a bit of a, a, a trap there. Um, and I think it's associated with the fact that if you see someone with broken noses, broken elbows, broken bones, that will heal in time uh, and then you'll be mended and you'll be ready to go. And there's a certain time frame and you're like, that's not the nature of trauma and that's not the nature of a healing journey because it can take many years. And I think it really needs, we need to unpack and understand uh, trauma intergenerational trauma, these concepts and constructs, uh, especially when we're offering and providing services to victim survivors. And then when we're trying to unpack and understand our relationship with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, what does this mean? How do we then develop uh, a service response that understands this and then responds accordingly? Um, so I think that's the that's part of um, the journey and people are probably wondering oh my god you know but I'm like hang on I've had to in my practice I've evolved um, my practice when I was a criminal um, lawyer when I was in commercial litigation everything new that I learned I built in and I weaved in to how I provided a service to my client and the reason I did it was because it was best practice and it was ensuring that they got the best outcome and then linking them. If I couldn't provide that service because I'm not a trained psychologist or counsellor, whatever it is, I would then link and refer them to another appropriate service provider who could then respond. So you're moving away from just a singular one dimension response and you're looking at a holistic 
um, model of a service response, because this is what um, what we find in my practice. We're not only responding to the legal matter. Yes, you might need a domestic and family violence protection order. Okay, we'll go to court. But the other things is, okay, now we understand that you're couch surfing. You don't have your own income. Um, the children haven't been going to school. How do we get you back on track? How do we get income set up? Mm. How do we link you in to get your own independent accommodation? So what we're doing there is we're actually building the self-efficacy and self-determination of that individual um, and reclaiming self-control and self-power. And that is, you know, it's that old adage, you know, if you give a man a, a fish, you feed him for a day. If you teach him how to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. So it's it's coming back to these old sayings. And I think, you know, I'm getting older. I'm like, yeah, that's a really good one. I, I can understand that now. It's too impetuous when I was much younger. You know, it's like, yeah, 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 it's old talk. Um, but now that, you know, things are slowing down and you you have moments of reflection, building in reflective practice, how to better enhance your product, um, it's like, I like that and this is how I build it in and I take to keep evolving. Um, and I think the danger is when you think that you've, you've hit perfection, um, I think that's the danger of you becoming a dinosaur and not relevant. You've got to keep moving and shifting to meet the needs of your client and the service that you provide and give. Alma, you're just a remarkable woman, and we have yes, um, enjoyed an incredible education and incredible perspective and insight from this conversation today. I thank you so much for having these tough conversations. They make people uncomfortable, they're confronting, but this is what needs to happen, and this is where we learn. Um, now, as we, as we wrap up today, Thelma, do you have a legacy that you would like to leave through your work or a message for our listeners that you would like to end on today? Oh, that's really hard. Part of my legacy, um, one of my best jobs is being a mum, and I'm a mum to a 21-year-old son. So um, I have raised and put my heart and soul into raising my boy to be the best man and the best human being he possibly can be. And I'm hoping that um, having an open mind, having an open heart, um, treating people with humanity, um, dignity and respect, I'm hoping that I've actually skilled him to survive and champion through, um, you know, in his generation and keep paying that forward um, and to have hope. Because when you look at the media and you look at everything that is around us, it's bleak. Um, you just want to throw the towel in. But uh, I, I think it really is imagining that there is a future that we can shape uh, and having a lens of humanity at all times, seeing us as people and what is in the best interests of all people, um, I, I hope is my legacy. I'm not here. I was at a conference um, a couple of weeks ago in Melbourne and I made it clear I'm not here to empire build. I'm here to make sure that those who walk behind me have a smoother uh, path to walk um, in their advocacy and championing those issues that are important to them um, to make sure that there is equality, uh, there is justice and equity for all. And it's probably poignant I'm sitting in my office having a chat to you today, Tracy, because I'm looking um, up at a, a photo um, of Martin Luther King 
when he delivered his I Have a Dream speech. Mm. And um, I am moved and inspired by his visionary words. And I believe that we will get there. Um, you just can't lose sight of the light. Um, and, you know, that old little saying, you know, it's always dark, darkest before the sun. You've got to keep believing that the sun will come, but you've got to keep believing and keep moving forward.